Welcome to episode seven of season three of Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. C.H. Siddons. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back. It's good to be back. And Mr. Peter Crable. Buongiorno. Hey, hey, fellas. It's been a long time. It's been yes. too long. We have hardly any content this year <laughs> in season three. It's sad. Don't repeat the barrier, Robbie. Have we hit the, have we hit the wall? No. no. Okay. No. Jeez. Right. It's been you a while. just repeated two barriers. <laughs> Uh, kudos to Mr. Crable. He is our unofficial producer and uh, leader of the band. He keeps us. He tries to get us together as much as possible. <laughs> you both of your stupid schedules are. <laughs> I know they're difficult. Uh, a little uh, encumbering. I know. <laughs> and Casey's not responding to texts as quickly as he used to. I don't know what he's doing with his life. <laughs> They really don't. <laughs> well, we are glad to be back, and we are glad you're with us. Thanks as always for. Following Ed's Not Dead and listening to the pod, you can find us at Ed's Not Dead PC on Twitter. And of course, check out our website, edsnotdead.com. As always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. We've got a big show tonight. Big show. We are going to delve into what candidates in the shrinking democratic field yeah it makes it easier for us to do yes <laughs> there's less people yeah, yeah. and it, i don't have any quizzes on less candidates reading. anymore <laughs> no quizzes uh but you have a quiz for our special guest we do yes yes we do um so yeah we're gonna we're gonna talk about what the democratic field says about education and we are certainly not endorsing any of them but we are obviously interested in where they lean educationally yes right and ideas that they have ideas that they have there is some overlap but there are some standout uh ideas i think i, I tend to think there's a lot of overlap but that's, <laughs> there is a lot of overlap but you guys are more politically informed than me uh, and then we are really excited to welcome natalie wexler on the show the author of the knowledge gap who um we talked about knowledge versus process a few shows ago, and she tweeted at us um, about our lack of knowledge about her book. Yeah, lack of understanding. Lack of understanding. So we're stoked to have her on Ed's Not Dead, and we're going to talk about knowledge versus process and how she sees knowledge as the missing link. Content versus skills. Content versus skills, yeah. I'm sorry, I described it in a very 90s way. <laughs> yeah. um, those are both fake laughs. I wasn't trained in the no, I like it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, and then uh, at the end of the show, we'll see what Mr. Siddons has in store for us. It might be nothing. Let's see if I can cobble something together. On, on episode seven. Anyway, so as we always do, let's get into show feedback. Mr. Krabs, what do you got for us? Well, as we alluded to last time, it's finally come out. Uh, we had a big article published from the three of us. That's right. One of the cover stories in uh, the February issue of AM AMLE Magazine, the Association for Middle-Level Education, uh, an article called Project Success, The Way Forward in Middle School. Uh, so check that out. It's online. If you're a member of AMLE, you've already gotten it. We'd love to hear some feedback on that. Thanks to the AMLE folks, the Omli folks for publishing us. That's right. Um, okay, so just before we move on to all these screenshots of tweets that <laughs> Casey's put in the show notes. <laughs> um, I wanted to make it big enough so you could see it. I got a couple bones to pick. You guys often portray me as the diva of the show. <laughs> so first what? off, first off, in the awesome article, um, who, what, which author was listed third in that article? I think me? No, that would be me. Oh, was it? Uh, that would be me. Well, because they knew that 
Never mind. They do what? Nothing. <laughs> Did I, you send in the the order of which we were <laughs> listed, Mr. Krabs? Uh, Come on, be honest. I, I mean, I definitely sent in the names and yeah, email addresses yeah, and all yeah. that. And Robbie Dodd was third. I don't. All I know is I put myself first. <laughs> you did. Of course I did. Of course you did. I sent it in. The Why pro- would I put myself the, first? The progenitor of Project Success <laughs> was put third. Hey, it's all about who submits. Okay, submit and then okay, and send that's, on the right. that's right. Second, second thing. Who's yes. writing the blog? Who's got a doctorate of these three? <laughs> Was there EDD listed next to my name? Oh, there wasn't. Oh, <laughs> okay. dagger. I should have done that. I oh, definitely yeah. did not do that. You I know got, that was the first uh, thing you looked at. <laughs> I did look at it. I better have my proper I, suffix. I have been stewing for for two weeks. I not I did not send a, t- no, uh, a text not. about it. About I'm glad it. you're bringing it up now. I was, I was waiting. Anyway, okay, I've got it out of my oh, system. Oh, that's I, so good. I, I feel better. So good. Slighted. <laughs> Um, all right. What do you? What else? What What kind of tweets do you have here? Hold about on, we got show? one more. One more. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So as a, re- a result of that, um, there's something called the Marshall Memo, uh, put together by someone named Kim Marshall, uh, who sends out a weekly memo of the sort of biggest stories in education. Uh, so we were honored to be included in that as well. Uh, the AMLE article uh, was included as part of his weekly. Uh, roundup or his weekly memo. Is there a link for that? Is there a, was there a way to tweet that, or is that just is yeah. that just for subscribers to his memo? I think it was a subscription based thing. He sent it to us, so yeah. But I didn't. Re- I'll, to, I'll look into that. And okay. If, if everybody else can get it, because there are some other good stories. In yeah, there. I looked yeah. at it. It was yeah. really good. Yeah. So it was, it thank was, you, Mr. Marshall. Yeah, honored to be included in that. Yep. Uh, and fellas, good job on the article because we 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 all three know. Uh, aside from my <laughs> my. My testiness. Uh, you guys did most of the work, so it was very good. Well, we could have done it without your research. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, what do you have, Mr. Your Bandurian <laughs> research? <laughs> My institutionalism. Oh. All right. Oh, okay. First part of the show is over. <laughs> that, that was it. That, that was it. A, that was a Frito alarm. It wasn't. It was a. It was go to bed soon. Okay. <laughs> All right. Tweets. Do we get any love in the Twitter sphere? A lot. What do you got? We have uh, some from Phyllis Fagel, friend of the pod. A friend, good friend of the pod. Good friend. She said, uh, thanks for sharing this with me, the article. And she was actually talking about our work with a team of central office and school administrators in Chappaqua, New York. Maybe she ran into Hillary Clinton. So glad you're continuing to share your great research with AMLE readers. And uh, Dr. Dodd said, "Very, it was a very good tweet, I must say. Data is clear. Higher reading scores and grades, stronger social engagement in school, and improved perceptions of the classroom environment compared to departmentalization requires a mindset shift on how we can educate kids in middle schools. By the way, BT dubs, <laughs> BT dubs. decades of research support it. Should I have done the BT dubs in all caps? Did you run out of le- uh, did yes, you run you out of letters or did you just or, or characters or did you, No, I thought BT was dubs brevity. was fairly cool. Yeah, it's good. I like it. Yeah. Right. I was just curious as your mindset. I came strong on that tweet. I don't tweet very much anymore, but I you it was good. You're, I, I had to I, I had, have, to, bring, I I had t- to bring it. I have some tweets stored ready to go to publicize it again before February's out. Ooh, oh, nice. nice. Yeah. Okay. I have some thoughts. Oh. Yeah, we can More as a, we cannot let Project Success die. Oh no, it's it's alive and well. It's okay. in AMLE magazine. It's never going anywhere. Right. Okay. All right, thank you, Mr. We got some other feedback from folks about uh, general listeners. We have uh, Uniquus S. Smith, and uh, they said, listening to my very first podcast with Ed's Not Dead so far, it's amazing, all caps. Very nice. And uh, they listened to the Grading for Equity uh, podcast with Joe Feldman, which we we really had a great time with Joe and had a great time having having him on the show. Kaz, as usual, Mr. Kaz chimed in. 
and uh, said, fantastic episode, lots of great thoughts. And he said, I got to see the Crable beard. Mm. Picks, please. It's... I always thought Peter Crable was a poor man's <laughs> pool of Paul Rudd. Oh, uh, that's, yeah. I a see bit of that. a backhanded compliment. A little bit, a little say. bit, a little bit. Yeah, but that's, overall, <laughs> he, that's a good one. And he, and he included an interview that's titled, Paul Rudd interviews himself on Hot Ones. <laughs> Can you, can you do slap in the bass? Slap in the bass. Slap in the bass. And then finally, there was another uh, user, Twitter user said, um, Druin said, I know there are some great math ed podcasts out there, but what are your favorite must-hear this one episode? Looking for some PD on the go for my commute for reference. I teach high school. And Carissa June 28 said, very plainly, but succinctly, how to make math teachers mad. By Ed's Not Dead PC. Oh yeah, love that was that. a good that title. Was a good that was a very good titled good. episode. That as well. was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice, nice tweak. Or yeah. So. Have we good. ever thought about um, having Kaz just do all of our Twitter for us? <laughs> we should just put it. <laughs> just pay him a couple I mean, bucks. We really should. He's, honestly, he's highly skilled. He is. He's good yeah. at Twitter. Yeah. And he, he actually troll like the best. So that's oh, he can as well. Yeah. <laughs> he can he can troll. Uh, I I got a I got a Twitter message or a DM. A DM. A DM, as they say. As yeah. they I think say. That's a direct message. That's direct from yeah. a, from a colleague, an old colleague. Yes. No longer a colleague. Hi, Robbie. I'm in Jersey now. Accidentally came across your podcast when looking for Zaretta Hammond. Love Ed's not dead. Had no idea it was you until I started listening and thought, "Hey, I know this guy." Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's Principal Connors. Thank you, thank you, Principal that's Connors, great. for for finding us. Yeah, and and I hope things are going well in Jersey. Yeah. All right. Anything else? No, all we, things did, are good. Did anybody troll us at all? I mean, we can't only do. We don't tweet po- enough, I think, to get trolled. I think you got to really. We're pretty careful about yeah. what we tweet. And you got to be pretty absolutist in what you tweet to really enact the trolls but does that mean we haven't arrived that no one has like we haven't really had a twitter storm yeah probably a little bit is that a goal do we want to add to the vitriol that's on twitter i don't know i think i would i would use it as a little bit of a measuring stick yeah you know you gotta you gotta make statements like teachers are incompetent (laughs) yeah you know then then you really piss people off and then you get seventy thousand responses never use textbooks how terrible you are all right we'll stick with being vanilla um, all right, let's move into uh, Nevada just occurred. Bernie Sanders had a big win. Yes. Once again, I want to say to our listeners, we are not espousing <laughs> any particular candidate. We're holding off our endorsement, our official endorsement, until after Super Tuesday. Okay. We're going to wait to see who pays us the most. That's right. right. Money. Uh, we've, <laughs> we've, we've had a, a, a good amount of time with President Trump and, and our friend Betsy DeVos, so we, we pretty much know where they stand on education. Yeah. Um, but we're learning about where the Democratic candidates stand. Yes. Uh, you both are highly interested in politics. Mr. Krabs, what do you have for us from Chalkbeat? So Chalkbeat has a, a great article, uh, Election 2020, Where Do the Candidates Stand? Um, and it breaks down by both candidates and issues. Uh, a nice 2020 cheat, cheat sheet about what the Democratic presidential candidates have said about education. So we got a nifty... Um, Magical wheel that we're going to spin. Oh, baby. Yeah, we bought a big wheel. So it's huge. Not, this is not a quiz, though, right? No, no it's not, no, no, but no. it's okay. a huge wheel. You're uh, going to hear it spinning in the background, yeah. and then it's going to come up with a topic, and we're going right. to say whether Th- what we think topic. about it. Yeah, a brief, a brief introduction to what it is, and right. then 
whether it, we like it or don't. It looks and, like and, it looks and like Robbie the, let Robbie was kind enough to let us drag it into his basement. It looks a lot like cave. the spinning wheel and California tortilla that my daughter <laughs> likes <laughs> to spin. It does. Well, you maybe, get the free two tacos. We might have borrowed it from we there. May have, yeah. we Nobody might, was looking. It's yeah, we might not be getting yes. it back. All right, yes. all right, ready? All right, let's go. Nice tinny. That's quite the. That's very robust. Spinning wheel. All right, what what is it, Mr. Krabs? What Teacher did it pay. Teacher oh, pay. Teacher pay. That's, all right, a, that's so always a winner. Pull it up. Yeah. So generally, teacher um, pay for five hundred. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> An hour. We 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 all know that the candidates want teachers to be paid more. That's common ground, right? But uh, I think this has to do more with setting a national minimum standard oh. for teacher pay. So what do we think? Should teachers be paid a minimum salary nationwide? I, I'm for it. Uh, I, I think it's a uh, it, Bernie Sanders, for example, has that teacher salary should all start at at least sixty thousand dollars, which is a great start. But what about teachers in uh, major metro areas where the cost of living is super super high? I think they would still be able to pay them more. Sure. So I would paying teachers more encourage more teachers, more people to come into the workforce. Does but okay, so let me ask a question with a question. Answer a question with a question. Does sixty thousand dollars make it seem like something I want to go into as a high well, for school? For teachers that are student? currently making twenty seven thousand dollars, that is I true. Would say, yes, good point. It does. But I, point. I, I do love how candidates just decide what teachers should be paid. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. We give an arbitrary I, number. Yeah. I think a teacher's worth sixty grand a sounds, year. That sounds good. Sounds right. That sounds good enough. Yeah. Uh, that that was that was Bernie's idea. Uh, Judge does differentiate a little bit. He thinks in his K twelve plan that he that teacher pay should be raised, especially for teachers in highly impacted Title one schools. Mm. So he's got a little bit of a different approach. I wouldn't call it merit pay, I w- uh, but it is it is it is pay for um, working in in schools with higher ed loads. And- I, w- I wonder also if this goes into the equation of teacher pay because when you think about what do teachers ask for or want the most money n- oh no other than money. money okay what time time and time costs money yeah you give a teacher an extra planning period and it costs money to do that and mm-hmm. staffing mm-hmm. so is that does that does that is that a part of the equation and should that be part of the discussion but, yeah i, I mean or is I, that too nuanced for too, a, I, 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 I don't think, think yeah, pretty, i don't think anybody's allowed more detailed plan aside from just yeah let's play pay teachers more money <laughs> now to play devil's advocate i mean do you really want the federal government getting involved in however i don't know how many teachers there are nationwide millions upon millions mm-hmm. in dictating minimum pay standards why not we have a federal minimum wage i don't know that no one we haven't raised in 30 years that's true. Not thirty years, actually, fifteen years. All right, let's do it. Let's pay them all. 60 I mean, grand. I th- I think there's broad agreement that what's the th- floor that teachers are underpaid. Yes, there's there's no yeah. que- there's no question about that. How how you do it? I mean, I don't see anything um, incredibly innovative here. I'd, I'd like to see no nobody. None of these candidates have mentioned having the private sector have any skin. In paying teachers more. Ah, That's interesting. That's true. Um, like having corporations pay for it? Why not? Yeah. I mean, in, in, your, in France... Public, educa- okay. <laughs> in, <laughs> Public education tax. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, uh, in, in a lot of countries, in France, they have, you, you if you start, a, if you have a, a company or you build a building, you have to put in public art. Yeah. You have to put it, you have to pay for installation of art. Uh, Every one of these candidates cites the Fed as the source of, of, of increased funding for teacher pay. Yeah. yeah. Put it on corporations. I'd, I'd like to see, that, right. see something. Create, Love it. Let's cre- do the next one. Creative. All right. They, they want the well-educated, informed workforce. Yeah. Got to, got to pay a little. Inve- got to pay to get what you want. Invest. I'm on board. All right. All right, round two. What are we going to do if we get this insane one twice? Get it over and over again. Uh, Spin it really hard. Kill the, kill the segment, eh? I've been lifting, so. Read. <laughs> <laughs> got to work on our microphone cool. set up here. Funding. Oh, funding. All right, let's go to the funding tab. Snoozer. Snoozer. <laughs> So, oh well, let's let's look at Joe Biden's speech here. Uh, Biden's education plan calls for tripling Title One funding for schools serving students from low-income family families, and he said, "quote That's not a hard lift." He said in a January speech, "They give away more to racehorses." <laughs> That's a good I, Joe I Biden quote. Means. I don't know what that means. I either. think generally um, the sort of uh, the consistent message across many candidates i'm looking here you got Buttigieg, you got biden you got sanders raise title one funding raise title one funding but it's also what is the equation for how schools are funded and right now it's by property taxes right. and we talked about that about california Bl- bloomberg says go income which is different oh yeah bloomberg bloomberg calls for a five percent income tax hmm. over for over five million yeah for every state or is that federal no that's I don't know. Doesn't, because doesn't, if all the billionaires specify. are... 5% tax on incomes over $5 million. So I would assume that that would be individual taxpayers. Yeah, right. Uh, but then I would... I, I'm surprised he hasn't thrown the corporations in there. I mean, that's where you could throw the big the big boys in. Yeah. Um, and going back to your point about what teachers want and wanting more time, I do think, you know, if we're looking at specifically Title I schools increasing funding to whether it's get more teachers more planning time or having smaller class sizes or i know it's not infrastructure that's a separate topic but putting uh more money into crumbling schools wraparound services right for schools with kids that are highly impacted um experience trauma etc generally i'm i'm in favor of that yeah what would you say teachers want more more time for example more planning time or lower class sizes? I would say, I would say my first inclination is lower class sizes because you're, I mean, they've already, you're already stuck with usually five or six classes. I shouldn't say stuck with, you're already assigned five or six classes. You know what you're going to get with that. Um, but if you have 32 kids per class versus 20, I know a lot of, I've talked to many teachers who would just rather have more classes and have less kids in them. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, and I'd be curious about. Especially if it's the same prep. I, I don't know about research on, on more planning time. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Do you think that. it's okay to specifically direct the funds towards Title One schools or should it be more evenly distributed amongst all schools? Um. I, I mean, I, I do think at times more and more that there's um, that there's a place for paying teachers more who elect to work um, where there is a there is a heavier lift 
uh, to support kids where there are more needs pressing down on communities and, and schools. Um, I mean, that's, we know that's a non-starter with most unions. Right. Uh, but I, I, I think that, I think our, I think our, our pay model, the, the classic teacher pay scale is probably about as old as departmentalizing and having <laughs> bells. Don't you think? Yeah. And I would argue if you're, I mean, we know the measurements to say whether a school is, is, is a challenging place for not only learning, but also teaching. So we should be paying those, te- those particular teachers more and we should be giving them more time to plan appropriate and, and targeted instruction for kids. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we have to incentivize the, the profession a little bit. I mean, when a, when a, doctor graduates from medical school or finishes their their um internship or whatever you call it what's it called <laughs> their, their residency, uh, their residency. residency. When they could... finish their practice practices <laughs> their practicum um i mean yeah they, they, can go, they can go into private practice or oh, they can go they, into a community health clinic absolutely and, they know, go out and five, they five ten whatever they sell their income. services yeah. and and one of their considerations i'm sure is 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 money yeah um along with professional satisfaction and who they're going to work with and all that stuff yeah. so i mean uh pete Buttigieg says teachers should be paid like doctors um i don't quite know what that means but it's a very easy analogy for it, people it, to, it, to, it to think about yeah so anyway, all right, spin the wheel. All right, here we go. I'm a little embarrassed about my in, my internship. <laughs> that's embarrassing. Doctors have internships, <laughs> and my, my brother's a doctor. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. Would you? He did his internship, and all right, <laughs> vouchers, baby. Oh, oh baby. Like everybody's pretty universally against vouchers. Yeah. This idea uh, has really fallen out of favor, uh, pretty much universally. I think across all anybody in the democratic field. Um, but with that being said, vouchers do exist in D.C., one of the most liberal cities it's in true. America. I think the data is somewhat mixed. And New York City. And New York City. With uh, Mike Bloomberg. Okay. Um, I'm not sure about New York, but I think it's pretty mixed in D.C. about whether it actually makes any difference. Our vouchers in, in, you know, many states have voted down. I think Nevada was the most recent one within the last year or two have voted down vouchers. Uh, but then there's other states, I think like Indiana, who yes. offer vouchers. Yeah. Should we allow states to do vouchers if they want to? Or should we just say, nobody does vouchers, none of our public school funds are going to be going to private schools for any reason? And I did misspoke. I did misspeak. He had expressed sympathy for the idea oh, okay. that it wasn't actually introduced in New York City. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the right answer to that. I think... Um, I think it's a delicate balance between what we allow states to do to, to, to basically incentivize quality education, but not allowing it to the point where it's just privatizing or allowing for private schools to flourish under, under public dollars. What about the child who, for some reason, can't get their needs met in a public school? I mean, that happens now with students who are re- receiving special education services. And yep. if, they've, if they've shown you know, through their own analyses, their own doctors, that the, the school isn't meeting their needs, then the school is obligated to pay for it. Yeah, so you're, you're missing a, a link there. So and, and lawyers. Yes. <laughs> so is that okay? They, they got to have lawyers. I, I, or do you I just want to cut vouchers totally out? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I think, 
at some point there are certain needs of certain students that are so great and so profound um, that perhaps it's not possible for the public charge to, to do so. But that goes against the whole th- point of a free and appropriate public education for all. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to come strong and say that I don't see a place for vouchers anywhere. No. All right. I, I, I don't. And, and it's so funny how political cycles work. Three years ago when we started the show, we spent a significant amount of time talking about vouchers because uh, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, they Big were they, they were a principal of her yeah. of her her approach to education. And I mean, talk of vouchers has largely da- died down over the last two years. Yeah, it's really fallen out. I, I, get, I guess the, the dis- what you're saying about the spe- the special needs of a student. I never thought about that as a voucher, but I guess it is. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the, the the far most far outlying cases. Right. I, you know? I and I would venture to say Democrat or Republican. I, I wonder what percentage of Americans really support vouchers. They want uh, their I, neighborhood school. Absolutely. They want I, the school that's closest to their yeah, house. Yeah. I mean, there was there was research done decades ago that showed that. When you when you ask someone about their neighborhood school, they usually speak fairly positively about it. When you ask about public education as a in whole, general, yeah. in general, they're highly critical. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah. I, I I don't I don't I don't think I don't think vouchers are now charters are another issue. Yeah. Well, maybe that'll come up. Let's do one All or right. two more. I hope right. not. <laughs> playing a video game here. <laughs> Yeah, read it. Read it for us, there, Case. Did you? We already hit that. Do you see the? We already hit that. Do you see the flickering light in the studio? Yeah, yeah, it's very it's, creepy. We, we have a we have a malfunction. We got a poltergeist. Studio light. What do you got? All right, college costs. Oh, so this is this is a big one. So in terms of college costs, there's. Quite a few ideas and plans out there. So I think the starting premise is that college costs way too much money. Yes. Um, which I would tend to agree with. And then, so what to do about it? So there's some talk of um, limiting what you can charge, but really the the biggest and or most radical ideas have to do with free college. Yeah. Um, whether that's two years of free community college, whether that's uh, on the on the further end of the spectrum, whether that's four years of free public university, right, and then some variances in between of the increase of Pell Grants and other federal aid to heavily subsidize money going um, to colleges. Right, right. So where are, we, where are we on those issues, on any of them? So let's start with, I guess, free community college. Check. Free, do it. Check. Yep. Done and done. Done. Check. Okay. What about free four-year colleges? Free for your public universities, I should say. Check. I agree. Uh, I'm not there. You're not quite there. No, what are, what are your reservations? Um, I I I'd like to. See, I, I mean, I don't. I think we have universal agreement that college is too expensive. Yes. Um, how much is it to go to Drexel University for an entire year? Is that Drexel? Is that yeah. private? Yeah, Drexel's it's private. private. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna guess. Um. Sixty-five k, crabs, uh, fifty-five, seventy grand. <laughs> okay, so I was close. Yeah, yeah, um, it's outrageous. Yeah, I mean those are private schools. They're they're you know they, um, it's it's pay to learn at those schools. Mm-hmm. 
uh, they're not getting the same kinds of state subsidies that right, right. that you know, state universities are getting. I, I guess what I'd like to see again is just um, more creative ways to defray the cost of four year schooling. Right, I, right. I, I again here just see the Fed paying more, right. um, and I'm Drexel still costs seventy two thousand dollars, but the federal government just pays whatever x amount of that correct right. i mean i don't i don't see any interesting kinds of partnerships between again the private sector um, right with with colleges uh i mean there are a lot of very rich people that get buildings and academic programs named after themselves mm-hmm. at colleges mm-hmm. uh, and i'm sure there are all kinds of scholarships that um the affluent put in place at universities to help students yes i'd like to see more of that on a larger scale yeah uh i just you know i mean there is a limit to what the government can do to subsidize school bloomberg has a bit of a a carrot and one i would say carrot and stick but really just carrot approach where offering some sort of federal matching dollars to Mm -hmm. states that agree to limit uh, tuition increases now it doesn't doesn't appear that it talks about walking back uh tuition to a more reasonable level just, right it seems like it stops at where it is and then uh just controls for inflation but that's also another idea of giving money to schools to keep it you know quote reasonable the the, the other thing that i'd throw into the 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 expense of college is the competitiveness of college i mean those colleges as they've gotten more expensive it's gotten incredibly hard for kids to get in, yes. even to state schools. Yes, I mean, take University of Maryland, for example. It's gotten to be really tough to get in. A lot of that is based on just the metrics that they want to show for their incoming freshman class, yeah. whereas you can get in as a transfer student much much easier. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it has. it's not just the price that keeps kids away. It's that, you know, kids, it, it's the... I feel like colleges are serving... Um, the the affluent more than they ever have, and, and uh, I I think a, less of a broad cross section of Americans, um, achievement wise, are able to access school. Yeah, and another uh, an interesting idea that Buttigieg has brought up is only um, free public college for students whose families make $100,000 a year or less. And his quote is, I just don't believe it makes sense to ask working class families to subsidize the children of billionaires. And I I take contention with that because then why don't we do that for public libraries and public schools and other public services that we provide? We provide it for everybody. A public good is a public good for for the public. Make a little class warfare. And it and it creates class warfare. And you know what? It might make it. it, it it's not going to be easy to pass when you talk about class warfare because if you talk about it for everybody, it's for everybody. Right. Do, you know, when my brother graduated from high school in 1979, he's almost 60. Um, my mom would not let him apply to the University of Maryland because she thought it lacked rigor. Yeah. Um, I mean, the joke was back then you could get into Maryland with a two five, maybe a three zero. <laughs> but I just think back to those times to think about the number of kids that were able to go to Maryland that were maybe marginal students or average students that benefited, um, who uh, having a four year degree made all the difference in their lives. We have kids that can't get into schools like that. 
Um, I sometimes I get a little prickly about having a state institution that my kid potentially cannot get into right. if they're not right. if they're not a super high achiever. Right, and it's it's meant to be for it's meant to be for the citizens public, of the state. Right, right, right. 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 So, right. I mean, um, anyway, so, I mean, what what can you do without a college degree? In yeah, terms of in terms of increasing sure. your lifetime earnings and and increasing your family's wealth. Yeah. So, Go ahead. Yeah, I was, well, I was going to change it up a little bit. Just one last um, kind of point that has not come up yet that is, I think, fairly contentious has to deal with the cancellation of student debt for any number of um, Americans. Now, some is, you know, Bernie's for cancellation of all student debt. Elizabeth Warren, I think, has a little bit more of a, um, a nuanced plan where it's not just wipe the slate clean. But the contention that I've heard is people are like, well, I had to pay for my school you know, why should other people get it wiped off and get the, the slate wiped clean? I mean, how do you think about the cancellation of student debt, which can be extremely crippling? I think, I, I think it's a selfish view of looking at new progressive legislation. I'm a little bit, I feel like I'm a little stuck here because I, I might be a, the last generation that didn't incur a tremendous amount of student debt. You guys are, are from a different generation. I mean, the millennials yeah. are often... You know, they're the generation that has been saddled with onerous debt. Yeah. Right. Um, and I don't have kids yet. So, I, I mean, I don't have kids in college <laughs> yeah, yeah. yet. So I might feel differently three years from now. Right. Um, when my kid has to take out loans. Yeah. Do you have any feelings about you paying for debt and then college? And um, Sorry, I said that horribly. You paid for college in the prospect of others in generations to come not having to. Does that no. impact you in any way? It does not impact me. And I, I was fortunate that ha- that I had a dad that paid for my school. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of kids don't have that. Uh, so I, I, don't, I wouldn't hate on, on, on subsidizing their school, make it, making it easier for them, because I know that instead of paying off loans – I was able to save up m- money for a down payment on a house right. and and become a homeowner right. pretty quick. And I spent 10 years of my first, really almost 10 years after college paying off my debt. Yeah. Where, I didn't have where I'm spending $600 a month that could go elsewhere. And exactly. the tough thing I think about it too is you're asking an 18-year-old to make a decision mm-hmm. incurring you know, 10, 20, 30,000 up to $300,000 of mm-hmm. debt. Mm-hmm. Imagine uh, you're 22 and you're three hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yeah, it's ridiculous. That's insane. No, I agree. It's insane. But and, the, and but it, but is it the core issue, the price? I mean, the the debt they wouldn't because right, it's so high. They yeah. would. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't incur the debt if 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 it wasn't so dag expensive. Right. And there's a big difference between fifty thousand dollars in debt, which is not minor. Right. And three hundred thousand yeah. dollars in debt. Yeah, I don't even know what I would do if it was three. I mean, <laughs> I run remember, away. I, I mean, remember looking at my bills, being like, "I'm never going to pay it off ever." I'm never. Well, I mean, that's why there's all this research now on the cost benefit analysis of college, whether it's worth it. Right. I mean, are you gonna? That, that that's why people push certification programs and two year degrees yeah. and yeah. such because yeah. the four year the four year contract is a freaking mortgage. Yeah. That's gonna that could yeah. la- that it's could a last lifetime time. commitment Correct. that prevents you from doing other things like buying a house. Exactly. All right, let's do one more. One more. Okay, this is this is like not radio. I, the the, the waiting. <laughs> All right, the, the waiting. Yeah, we education a, the secretary. Dead air. 
Education secretary. Education oh, that's secretary. good. It's a nice easy one. I, I like this one. <laughs> All right. What 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 is the most radical <laughs> proposal for education secretary from these candidates? Well, I think many candidates have come out and said. Uh, Specifically in retaliation or in response to Betsy DeVos, that yeah. they want, they will hire somebody who has been a teacher and or educator. I don't know if it's public educator and or educators. So they want somebody who has had skin in the game and has yeah. been in the classroom. But come yeah. to the chase. They say they want a teacher they want to a be teacher. the secretary of education. Yes, they do. <laughs> I mean, that's such a novel idea. I mean, that's. Hey, wasn't the first, uh, first? It's, it's having the employees the on the board. The what? It's having employees on the board. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm pretty meh on the whole idea. I'm. I'm meh. <laughs> 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 I think what it's going to end up being is, you know, an Elizabeth Warren type person who spent um, five years in the classroom, and then w- for their first five years of their career, and then went on to have an entire other career. Yeah. You know, is that? In the spirit of uh, of hiring a teacher as your secretary of education, I mean, at the end of the day, you're you're managing just a bill, you know, billions of dollars of federal funding, right? Yeah, you're a bureaucratic manager. You are uh, with but, a nice desk, but you're also going into public schools, supposed to be going into public schools, visiting teachers, <laughs> talking about their issues, finding ways that you can solve the, the issues that our public schools face. From the federal government. I mean, you are a political appointee. So a, yeah. a, a large amount of your role is political. Yeah. I mean, you're representing a, a platform for the chief executive. Um, and, and I think there are certainly plenty of charismatic um, Pied Piper kinds of teachers out there that could that could do that. Yeah. Um, and, are, and are smart enough to, you know, r- run an agency. God knows. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I don't, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm all for, I'd hate to see the, the Peter principle come into play where somebody's promoted to their level of incompetence. Um, but why not? Yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess the optics but why, of it. But would why be not, going, why not a principle? Why not a principle? You call yourself an educator. You are a public educator. <laughs> okay. Was that like. It wasn't a dig. No, it wasn't a dig. It was like, I call you, we're educators. When I talk about the podcast, we are three educators talking about education. We are. It's not limited, you're saying, just to teachers. Just because you're not in front of kids every day does not mean you're not a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it it definitely has the potential. It could be cool. Um, And as you said, there's probably plenty of people who have experience both in the classroom, in a school, and then, you know, managing some sort of organization. Yeah. I mean, and, and in this day and age, with your gen, with millennials, who I find to be... Um, really multi-talented and and skilled in a in a wide array of kinds of things because you're so good at getting information. Um, I I think I think somebody could do it pretty easily. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's right. do it. All right. Well, there you go. Oligarchy in this the Department of Education. Ed's not dead. Oligarchy. We just need. We just. I mean, it has to be teachers. Teachers are leaders. Yeah. At their core. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think any any superior leader could could lead that agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. It's the end of that segment. I know. I guess you're giving me the look. I'm giving you the to... look. All yeah. right. All right, folks. Uh, don't go away. Uh, the big segment is coming up. Natalie Wexler, the author of the Knowledge Gap, is going to be joining us on END. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 
Natalie Wexler is a DC-based education journalist focusing on literacy and the so-called achievement gap. She's the author of The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It, which was released in August 2019. She's also the co-author of The Writing Revolution, Advancing Thinking Through Writing in All Subjects and Grades, a step-by-step guide to using the instructional method developed by Dr. Judith Hockman. She's also a contributor on education to Forbes.com and the author of three novels. It's very appropriate that we have Natalie on the show because uh, she responded to a tweet of ours way back (laughs) where uh, she said, not sure the podcast really captures the argument of my Knowledge Gap book. Coming 8-6 would be happy to explain on air. And here we are. Now now we have her, and uh, clearly all three of us lack knowledge. (laughs) So you're here to fill in the holes. Thanks for coming on the show, Natalie. We really appreciate it. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me and and following up on my tweets. Yes. All right. So let's let's jump in, and we we're gonna we're gonna ask you to to um, give us some context because probably there are some folks in our audience that haven't read the book. Let's start off by hearing about what served as the primary inspiration for writing the Knowledge Gap. Um, and can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the knowledge gap is? Sure. Um, well, it's, you know, the, the the title is kind of a play on the term achievement gap or sometimes opportunity gap. It's called really a test score gap. And about 10 years ago now, I got very interested in education and in the so-called achievement gap. And, and why has it been so difficult to narrow it? Um, you know, we've made some gradual progress, but Really, there's some research that says it really hasn't significantly narrowed the income-based, you know, the gap between kids from the higher and lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. That really hasn't narrowed in maybe 40, 50 years, according to some scholars. And when I started looking into this, both as a journalist and sort of, you know, an education reformer, I was on the board of a charter school, what I – what thought and what everybody was telling me was the real problem was high school. High school's, you know, the toughest nut to crack, and that's where the real problems are. But what I stumbled across, um, and and I don't know that I would have figured this out myself, uh, was that elementary school, which everybody had told me was really the bright spot in education, where the, the scores seemed to be gradually be getting better and the gap seemed to be gradually narrowing, that that was really where uh, the root of a lot of the problems that become apparent in high school lies. And what I mean by that is the way we teach reading in particular. And we spend an enormous amount of time teaching reading. And most of that time, hours every week, is really spent on what are called reading comprehension skills and strategies. And those are things like finding the main idea or making inferences. And the theory is that kids just need to practice these skills on texts that are pretty easy for them to read on their own and that are on a random variety of topics. And that if they just get good at, you know, finding the main idea, then down the road, when they get to high school, they'll be able to find the main idea of any textbook that's put in front of them or really even at the end of the school year uh, when they have reading passages on standardized tests that they'll be able to apply this skill of finding the main idea. And what I discovered was uh, that cognitive scientists have known for a long time that something like finding the main idea is not a generally applicable skill. That you know comprehension has much more to do with how much 
background knowledge and vocabulary you have relating to whatever topic you're trying to read about than it does with some general skill. So if, if you know a lot about baseball or molecular biology and you read something about it, it's going to be a lot easier for you to find the main idea than if you don't know anything about it. And so um, this focus on these reading comprehension skills, which has intensified over the last 20 years with the advent of high stakes standardized reading tests, um, that this has, we've really been shooting ourselves in the foot. And this is a large part of the explanation for why we haven't made any progress in narrowing the gap because the kids who come to school with more of the kind of knowledge and vocabulary that helps with reading comprehension, they are picking up that, that knowledge from home generally because they have more highly educated families and the other kids rely on school for that kind of knowledge and they're actually the least likely to get it there and so what what we've been doing so the kids who have more knowledge and vocabulary they do better on the tests they tend to come from wealthier families in our society and um and they get better they acquire more and more knowledge every year they stay in school because knowledge also helps you retain related knowledge and meanwhile the kids who are relying on school for that knowledge and are not getting it fall farther and farther behind every year and it really falls apart in high school because that's where the assumptions about background knowledge are the greatest and that's where the gaps are the greatest so and i i I appreciate you bringing this this piece up to us because we were talking earlier uh off the pod about some of your arguments in the book and you talk a lot about content rich versus skills-rich classrooms. And so we, we do have a lot of res- listeners who are teachers and um, folks who are in the education system, but can you can you break down a little bit about examples between what you see between or what you observe between content-rich and skills-rich? Sure. Uh, and one of the things I did for the book was I followed two early elementary classrooms through a school year, and um, that was kind of an afterthought, but um, it really, for me, was one of the most illuminating pieces of research I did, and and uh, I, I hope it's illuminating for readers as well, both inside and outside the education world. So one of the classrooms I followed was, a, you know, using the standard skills-focused approach to comprehension. And before I go any further, I do want to say that, you know, there are two components, basically, to reading there's decoding, like phonics, and there's comprehension. And as far as decoding goes, like sounding out words, that really does need to be taught as a set of skills. Often it's not, right. but it should be. Right. Uh, whereas comprehension is often taught, generally taught as a set of skills, and it shouldn't be. But this skills-focused classroom, I mean, is typical of others that I've been in, where there's, there may be a skill of the week. Right. Um, and the, the teacher models that skill for students choosing a book that, that not for its topic or its content, but for how well it seems to lend itself to demonstrating the skill of comparing and contrasting or determining the author's purpose or whatever the skill of the week is. And then the kids scatter essentially to um, practice the skill on books that have been determined to be at their individual reading levels, which could be years below their grade levels. Um, and of course, you know, if so if you're in sixth grade, you might be directed to a basket of books at like a second grade level. And the idea is you'll somehow move, move up the ladder of text complexity if you just keep reading those books that are easy for you to read. Right. And there is no evidence that that actually happens. Um, the content-focused classrooms, which may be less familiar to your uh, 
listeners who are, are elementary teachers, because there are many fewer of them, um, there are now like half a dozen different content-rich elementary literacy curricula. Um, I happened to observe a classroom that was using one, one called Core Knowledge Language Arts, which is the oldest of them. And when I was doing my research, it was pretty much the only game in town. And in those, but, but they, it, Core Knowledge Language Arts has some characteristics in common with other content-rich curricula, which is that for one thing, it's organized by topic rather than by skill. Mm. And kids will spend at least a couple of weeks on a particular topic. And they'll listen to the teacher reading aloud from texts or books that they themselves couldn't yet read right. independently. And that's really important because they need eventually they're going to need to grapple with complex written language, which is very different from spoken language. And they need to get used to that vocabulary, that syntax through listening. And also they, that's the, a much more efficient way for them to acquire sophisticated concepts, knowledge of those concepts, because listening comprehension exceeds reading comprehension in, in the content areas. Certainly, it's been found on average through middle school. So, um, you know, we shouldn't stop reading to kids once they've learned to decode because they still can take in more sophisticated information through listening than through their own reading. Do you, uh, did you, did you ever read the read aloud handbook by Jim Trelease? I know. I mean, I've seen it. I know I've heard about it. Right. Um, and, uh, but so, no, I haven't read it. So let me, let me, um, I'm, I'm interested about this, this selection of texts in classrooms because, um, I hear you, I hear you talk about the skills rich classroom, but, um, it seemed to me, aren't, aren't you just kind of isolating that the teachers are making instructional decisions that are, that are lead to kids not being in dense or rigorous enough texts? It's not really a matter of the text themselves, because I, I mean, if I agree with you, teachers probably spend too much time with kids at the instructional level versus, you know, to quote Lev Vygotsky, you know, really challenging them with support. Um, but it, but I'm, I'm not sure it's a, is it a text specific thing? Well, I'd say it's a, it's a topic specific thing and a text specific thing. So it's part of the problem is that kids are not being exposed really to complex text if they're at, their reading levels are significantly below grade level. Um, but did you and, say, did you see those texts in those skills rich classrooms? Were they there? The kids just weren't accessing it, them based on the teacher's decision. You're, you're talking about the skills-focused classrooms. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they, there were texts at a range of reading levels. If, if you've got a classroom where everybody's reading below grade level, I don't know how far up they go, but the kids would be restricted. They, they weren't allowed to – if they were level you know, L, they weren't allowed to read a level P or Q right. book. Mm. It was – the assumption was that it would be frustrating for right. them. And it might – be, but the thing is, not necessarily, the other thing that's important here is this random variety of either fiction or topics that are random doesn't give kids an opportunity to acquire the information and the knowledge that they that will make it easier for them to understand more complex text. So it's not just that it's partly that written text has this more complicated syntax and vocabulary, but it's also that the more uh, background knowledge you have on a topic, the more you've been able to develop 
the the easier it will be for you to read more complex text on that topic because you will recognize the concepts, you'll recognize the vocabulary, and you'll have an easier time making sense of it. Well, I I feel like um, uh, most of my experience has been in uh, middle school, and when when we have students coming in at sixth grade. Uh, when Common Core came through, they uh, our curriculum changed to the analysis of primary sources, which is a I guess I guess you would consider it a skill being able to analyze primary sources. But they are learning content through the analysis of those primary sources, which I would argue is a pretty rigorous set of skills to learn. What, what do you what are what are your thoughts on on those social studies those historical thinking skills? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, first of all, it, sound, it does sound like they're, they're actually acquiring some knowledge and content and learning at the same time that they're learning how to deal with primary sources. But it's, it is also, they're, you know, it's similar. If you're handed a primary source about, you know, um, the 16th, 16th century, you know, France, and you don't know anything about 16th century France, it's going to be harder for you to make sense of that primary source than if it's something you do know about. Sure, so sure. Uh, and I just going to enter into it no matter what. And I, to- I totally take your point on that was an argument that a lot of our, uh, my colleagues had about at the time was, you know, what if they don't know the content around it? And really, the, the job of the teacher was really to not only just give it to them cold, but provide that context as needed. Because we were in sixth grade, we were analyzing primary sources from like ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. So there really is no, yeah. there really was. I mean, almost every kid to a to a, to a T didn't have that context. You'd have a, a random kid here and there who you know nerded out on ancient Egypt in, in fifth and fourth <laughs> yeah, grade. Right. But but I, I I take your point. I just I guess I'm just trying to figure out like. It is, is are some of these issues mitigated by the teacher being able to skillfully provide context as needed? Well, um, yes, but I would say better than that is rather than putting a, even a skill like analyzing primary sources in the foreground, rather than putting any skill in the foreground, I would say it makes more sense to put the content in the foreground and the skills, you know, develop naturally more or less from i mean okay we're learning about ancient egypt here's a primary source let's try to make sense of this primary source Mm. and then you know the next unit we're learning about mesopotamia or whatever ancient greece here's another primary source remember what what we did with the last primary we can do something similar here but we but you're also learning about ancient i mean the main thing you're doing is learning about ancient civilizations not learning this sort of you know, to, it's not really an, a, a generally applicable skill of reading primary sources. There's some things that you need to know about that, but you, if you don't have the context, you, you can't exercise. You can't apply the skill. Hmm. Okay, I, I yeah, I, t- I take your point. I, I, I suppose my my thought was if if you were teaching them the skill of analyzing primary sources, that you would uh, you would hopefully open up the door for kids to be able to access really any kind of historical knowledge because that's what history is based on primary sources largely well yes but even as a i mean i have a background in history myself but it's you know i mean if if i looked at a primary source from a a place and a time that i didn't know anything about even though i have analyzed primary sources i might not be able to do it sure because i just wouldn't have the knowledge sure um switching gears natalie i'm i'm the i'm the Gen X geezer of the group here. Um, and so Edie, Edie, Edie Hirsch was really popular when I was becoming a teacher back in the 
early nineties. I'm just curious. Did, did I want it? Well, a reviewer referred to your book as, as the lost children of Edie Hirsch. I don't know if you saw that. Um, I did. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was, I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, did cultural literacy have any impact on your thinking about the knowledge gap? Oh, of course. I mean, I think, you know, I, I certainly, I read maybe all of E.D. Hirsch's books, but, um, you know, when I was researching this book, I hadn't, and I'd heard of cultural literacy vaguely, but I really, I think like many people, I didn't really know what it was about. Right. Um, and I think it was, I mean, you say it was really popular when you were doing your teacher training. And yeah. My impression was that it was quite unpopular among like schools of education. <laughs> it was notorious and it was condemned by a lot of people because it was really interpreted, misinterpreted to say we, you know, we really need to emphasize white, dead white males and Eurocentric. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, he, you know, Hirsch did say that to some extent, but not because he thought dead white males were better than other people or that Western civilization was better than other civilizations, but because he he actually empirically looked at what is the knowledge that is assumed you know, in a newspaper article or a magazine article or whatever. And it turns out I mean, it's probably somewhat less so 30 years later, but it turns out that a lot of the knowledge that's assumed actually has to do with Western civilization and allusions to Western culture. And really what E.G. Hirsch was concerned about was that some people in our society have gained that knowledge and others have been denied access to it. Right. But that message kind of got lost. Well, he, yeah. And, and you're, you're, I think you're partially accurate. I mean, I lived through that era as a, as an educator and he was, he was reviled, but it also cultural literacy came out also at the height of the phonics whole language wars. And I was trained as a whole language teacher. So I did find his thinking very interesting. I didn't agree with some of it. And then it, then it lent itself to, um, you know, the, the, the standards based movement and, um, and even, even, I don't know if you looked at assessments like the standards of the SOLs in Virginia and, and what Maryland did, which were two very different approaches to knowledge. Um, but that's, that's that, that, that was kind of what came out of that Edie Hirsch moment. Yes. Although, um, Hirsch <laughs> said to me, what he say? He is sometimes, um, identified as the father of the standards of learning yeah. in Virginia, but he yeah. denied paternity. Oh, he did. Well, that's, <laughs> they got so watered down. Yeah. Well, they've been around for a long time. They've lasted, but I'm sure they have been watered down. Anyway, go ahead, Peter. Yeah. I just wanted to back up, um, to kind of some of the early childhood reading and how, um, generally we teach kids to read and, um, you know, I'm certainly not an expert on early childhood education. You're a parent, though. I'm a parent, yeah. So I'm I'm living through some of it. I have a six year old who's in the process of of learning to read, and so I, I guess the question is, you know, you you'd mentioned that reading is a mix of uh, phonics and decoding. So, you know, two parts is one: Do you have any thoughts on early childhood reading, phonics versus whole language, or some mix, or anything else? And then second. You know, when or at what age, you know, would you identify the kids switch from learning to read to reading to learn? Okay. Um, well, I, those are good questions. And and I would say that I am, you know, this it's not just me, that the science is quite clear on the, the superiority of phonics um, as a, a, an instructional method for decoding. I mean, it's not just phonics. There's phonemic awareness, which is 
hearing the individual speech sounds in words, which is very important. And then there's phonics is basically connecting those sounds or to, to letters or blending those letter, you know, sounds into letter form combinations. Um, and then there's fluency, which, you know, you have to be able to read at an appropriate rate to make, otherwise it's you just not, are not getting the meaning. So you have to practice that. Those are all things that should definitely, in my view, and, and that, many scientists be taught explicitly and systematically not that every kid will need those that kind of instruction i mean there are, there are kids maybe as many as half who will learn to read kind of no matter what um, but at least to some extent but that means maybe 50% or, or a bit more won't and those do tend to be kids from less educated families and even some of the ones who manage to learn will not become fluent really fluent decoders without systematic instruction so that i feel is you know definitely important but um, the comprehension side it has to be handled differently, not as an explicitly taught set of skills. And it has to be, this is, this relates to your learning to read and then reading to learn point. You know, there's some truth to that because you do have to learn to decode before you can use reading to acquire knowledge. But the acquiring knowledge part should not wait until after a kid has learned to decode. As I mentioned before, um, you know, they, kids can take in a lot of sophisticated information and vocabulary and knowledge through listening even before they fully learn to decode. And it's really important to start building their knowledge then. You know, kids from more educated families are start they acquiring knowledge and even ac- kind of academic or quasi-academic knowledge very young. Um, they can do it. All kids are capable of that. It's just that a lot of kids don't get that opportunity, and sure. that's what schools really need to do. So starting in kindergarten, if not before, they, kids can handle historical topics. There's a widespread belief that those are developmentally inappropriate below a certain age, yeah. but there's no evidence for that. So you can read them. You know, History can be presented very engagingly as a series of stories, and kids love yeah. stories. So that's the kind of thing that, that they – you know, this learn to read, read to learn dichotomy overlooks the fact that part of learning to read is acquiring knowledge. And I, I, I as a social studies teacher in the first year of middle school, uh, I certainly found uh, that a lot of students came with not a lot of background knowledge coming into school about history because of the no child left behind era of testing and, and the focus on the hyper focus on reading and math to the detriment of, of history. Yeah. Um, well, Natalie, it's it's has been a pleasure having you on the show, and I, um, I don't know how often you listen, but whenever I can sneak one in from into the podcast, I try to get a uh, get a quiz in to, uh, okay. to our guests. And I want you to know, Natalie, that I usually try to kill the <laughs> kill the quiz, but he insists. I so. insist. Here, here uh, you go. And so, your book called "The Knowledge Gap" talks about a greater focus on content. We have to end our time with a quiz on some content before you go. So Natalie, you are, are you the going to quiz me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So Natalie, you are the author of the Knowledge Gap. Pick it up: the hidden cause of America's broken education system and how to fix it. But we want to know what you know about minding the gap, the London <laughs> Underground, the London subway system. I have three questions for you, and if you get two out of the three correct, uh, oh, wow. we'll send you, you win. some E and D swag. All right, I'll do my best. You ready? I spent a fair amount of time in London. All right, <laughs> we'll it's multiple see. choice. All right, ready? 
Okay. Number one, how many trips are made each year on the London Underground? Is it A, 1.3 billion, B, 200 million, or C, 4 billion? Oh, my God. What was the first one? 1.3 billion. Well... I'll go with that one because it's in between the other Ah, two. that is correct. Each year, about 1.3 billion journeys are made. Uh, the busiest state station is the network in the network is Waterloo, which sees about 100.3 million passengers per year. I, I want to point out that that was not based on Natalie's knowledge. That was a test-taking <laughs> skill ah, that she utilized. Oh, I just want to point that out. Split the difference. Split the difference. Number two, you're doing great. How long does the average Londoner spend in the underground each year? Is it A, four days, B, 11.5 days, or C, 20 days? Those are all depressing, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Boy. Um... I'm going to go with four days. Uh, it's actually incorrect. It's 11.5 days. I should have split the difference again. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a pattern. <laughs> 5.2 of those days are in the actual tunnels. And it's not clear if it's like when they're stopped or if they're waiting for another train. Anyway. All right. You have one more. One more. A lot Three. of pressure on this last okay. one. Yeah. People have left a lot of weird things on the London Underground trains. Which of the following are actual items left on the train and collected by the Lost Property Office? Is it A, an outboard motor, B, three dead bats, C, a harpoon gun, D, a stuffed eagle, E, breast implants, F, false teeth, G, a four-foot-tall Mickey Mouse, H, six full-sized mannequins, I, an urn containing a dead man's ashes, or J, all of the above? Well... There's I, not that I can remember all of it. So I'm just gonna go with J. All of it. That is correct. Yeah. That is correct. All of the above. She get she get one, one, one or two. Did she? She get? got two out of the three. Very nice. The harpoon was mine, by the way. I've been looking for that thing. <laughs> all right, uh, Nat- Natalie. Where can our listeners find the book, and where can they find you online? Well, the book, you know, my, my website is nataliewexler.com, so okay. that's um, pretty easy to remember. Yep. And, you know, the book is at all the usual places, I guess, um, <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, Amazon, etc. So, uh, yeah, I hope people will check it out. Okay. All right. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for being a good sport. And um, the book is tremendous and it's really thought provoking. Um, we have this discussion all the time about content versus skills. And um, so it was it was right on time having you. So thanks great. for coming on the show. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. I really had a good time. All right. Take care. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks. Bye bye. Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. We're still here. Once again, thanks to Natalie Wexler for joining us. Uh, it was a good interview. It was. I was glad to have her on the show. Short notice, and yeah. I appreciate her. She stepped her, up. Uh, her coming out. To when did you talk book? With us. When did you book her? I, e- I well, I emailed her on Monday. Wait, what is today? Tuesday. I think I think, I, think it, I emailed her two days ago and she got back to me right away, which was great. What I liked is that in the group text, I offered um, 
what I assumed by the lack of the 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 tepidness of the response that I got was a lackluster guest. My idea for a guest, you never even responded, Ch Siddons, which is and not then, which is not then, like me. And then you come through with uh, your your with Natalie Wexler today. So good the job. follow through sometimes doesn't work out with some of your guests. No, I I had that person you I, ghosted me. I could I could I could have locked them up anyway. Um, I I enjoyed listening to her. I had to bite my tongue a few times. I think it could have been a longer discussion for sure. Um, and I think you know we t- you know just behind the scenes here, we talked a bunch after we got off the interview, and you know maybe some questions and paths we'd wished we had gone down, maybe some assumptions that she had um, made that we probably disagreed with. But such is the nature of interviews. Such is life. Is, is the, we could always have her back on. Is is a knowledge rich classroom really, or lack thereof, the 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 cause the, of it. the cause of Americans' broken school systems? Well, I, I I don't even I think the premise of the question is something that we as a, a as a podcast disagree with. Admittedly biased. Well, correct, but our whole premise of our podcast is that public education is alive and well, yeah. and not dying Ooh, and well not said. dead. Yeah. We because should, why Ed's did not we, dead. Why didn't we say that? Uh, in the moment, yeah, I didn't think about it. It's like that, you know. When we you don't have know a, how to be contrarian without being offensive, correct? <laughs> and you know, you know, when you have someone like say something in a meeting, and then you think about a comeback like three days the later. Day, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I also, I mean, not to be, um, not to be a, a relativist, but I, I would have liked to talk more about so this knowledge rich classroom. Who's defining what the knowledge is? Yeah. Um, is is wh- whose position is, is is it to say to underprivileged kids, this is the knowledge you need? Right. Yeah, yes. Um, the requisite knowledge. Right. right. And then how does race play into that? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what schools is she talking about? Is right. she talking about uh, schools with mostly black and brown kids and there's some there's some canon of knowledge that they don't have? Well, I think back to uh, our interview with Erica Buddington in season one or season two, uh, and she talked about uh, like micro curriculum, if you recall. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she was, I can't remember, somewhere in New York City. Good pull, Mr. Grace. Yeah. But talking a lot about hyper local ideas and issues for a place like New York that has so much history. Yeah. And so much knowledge to understand. You walk down the street and this building used to be this building and this area has changed this way. And this, right. I mean, like, that is in and of itself incredibly valuable and content rich. Right. Um, but, you know, wouldn't be appropriate for, um, you know, a kid in Iowa or something like that. It just isn't relatively important. You know, yeah. To that I mean, I do, I do think the knowledge, I mean, I do think a knowledge rich classroom is code for a certain kind of knowledge. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. I mean, we're talking, we're talking, uh, we're talking facts and figures and, and Western civilization. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think there are folks that would take exception to that full disclosure. Uh, none of the three of us went there. True. In our interview. <laughs> True. Right. Cowards. Not cowards. Maybe. So maybe part two. But I will. And I, but I will. I will and would be interested to hear feedback from others. Um, just because, you know, we have sat now on this interview and thought about it for a little bit. And I think I will continue to do so. And kind of new new questions um, will arise. So I'd be interested what other people think about that as well. Yeah. I don't think we disagree. 
necessarily with the premise that um, certainly knowledge is important. Uh, I just don't know if I totally buy into the idea that schools have have completely missed the boat because they've just been exclusively right. s- skilled. All they do is teach skills yeah, and I no content yeah, ever. I don't. I don't agree with that. Yeah. Um, anyway. All right, you got something to say, Mr. Sitz? Uh, Last I, the word. One, the one piece did resonate with me, which she mentioned very early about, uh, I can't remember the phrase exactly, but it was about uh, achievement gaps and opportunity gaps. And um, oh, yeah, I know where you're going. The, the one thing she mentioned about uh, schools being measured on whether they're success or failure based on tests, uh, standardized tests. And, and, to that, I agree. Yeah, true. Uh, but I can't think we we should ever dismiss the opportunity gap that exists in schools where there are low or students that are um, students of color and and in low SES areas, um, and and how much a detriment that is to um, just students' general overall well being and learning environment. I, it, it goes beyond just learning about the War of eighteen twelve. Yeah. But she didn't say this, but I, 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 I wonder if Miss Wexler would would argue that that denying kids knowledge has been is is part and parcel of the opportunity gap. That, and I, I could sense, I could see that. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an argument to be made there. That if, if, are you if, saying if, that if they're not they're not getting knowledge, therefore they're being drilled with skills yeah. instead of getting the rich knowledge that maybe they could be getting Listen, if they had the skills. There, there, there. You know, I watched it. Um, firsthand after No Child Left Behind in 2001 that there was this uh, publishers like Sopris West created completely prescriptive, um, dumbed down reading programs that lacked almost any kind of knowledge base that kids had to learn. And who do you think the kids were that that were were bludgeoned with those right. programs? Right. And it was all in the name of raising test scores, right? And teaching kids to read. And so I do I do think that there was there were inequities there. Yeah. Um, if if you if you weren't if you weren't one of those kids or in one of those schools or areas of the country, you know you didn't you didn't you weren't you didn't have to suffer through yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and 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 again, that was all for that was in the unholy quest to try to make adequate yearly progress, right? Um, and to avoid penalty, draconian, ever increasing in draconian penalties. Yeah. What's my yeah. phrase? Coercive accountability. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, uh, do you have a quiz for us, Mister Sids? No quiz. No quiz. <laughs> we did the quiz with, Free Nat- pass. with Natalie Wexler. That's right. Yes. yes. All right. What do we got coming up on episode eight? That would be nothing. I don't know. <laughs> well, so, but what I can <laughs> tell you on, is we got some good blog posts. Yeah. Oh, you, uh, let you me did. give you the title. Let me whet your appetite. You got Ooh. some. You got some. I got some titles. Some some working titles. I got some. What I was got your blog? What was your fires. mangled cliche? Yes. I got some. <laughs> I, I'm working on some balls of wax. He's got right. some boats in the All fire. Right. Give All us, right. Give us your blog. First one: the failure of social studies. How lackluster social studies instruction fueled the crisis in our republic. Whoa. Is that too big? It's that, like a, it's like an Atlantic article. <laughs> I, I hope I could write it. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I hope that's, I could finish it's it. It's a good title. Yeah, that's heavy. All right, next one. Putting the onus on us. Why we should stop blaming kids. Okay, I like that. And yeah, like last that but not least, the case against treating high school students as adults. Mm, very good. All right. So Are high school students treated like adults. 
when it's convenient. It's a case against it. Right. So looking forward, uh, you're giving Robbie <laughs> he a look. Listen. Oh, he didn't even he's, listen. He's tight lipped over there. <laughs> I see him. I, I'm listening. Uh, yeah. Taking it all in. So I went to a conference uh, a week or two ago, uh, put on by an organization called Learning in the Brain. How was your hotel room? Uh, I stayed with my brother. <laughs> you, went, uh, you went on the cheap. I would be a squeaker, you are. as you well know. <laughs> you are a total squeaker. Uh, so maybe the conference was in part chosen for that reason. Um, but I saw some good speakers. Um, so once we get a date uh, hammered out, I think there's a couple that I would like to. You saw P- to. you saw Pete Hall. I saw Pete Hall. Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah, you you were you were impressed. He's a very compelling speaker. Can we get him on the pod? I think so. All right. He Let's... lives in Idaho. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, I saw him Court, speak one Court time. Lane. Yeah, he's a he's a Western guy. Yeah, I didn't know. Yep. Um, he he seems like a Western guy, kind of. He doesn't wear a bolo. No, he doesn't. He does not. <laughs> When you not, say a Western guy, I does think he, does he have bolos? Does he wear he's spurs? Kind of a, he's kind of an independent-minded guy. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with yeah, that. Yeah, he's got that Western spirit. Yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, another lady, uh, a sociologist, who talked about uh, anxiety in for up your alley, Robbie, uh, mostly in relation to high school students. Oh, in the formula, kind of where where the ever increasing anxiety comes from, and then how to. How to combat it to make happier, healthier children. Generalized anxiety. Yes. Yeah. It is It is quite diagnosed. Yes. Yep. All right. Cool. Um, any uh, any professional endeavors you got coming up, Mr. Krabs? No, I don't think so. Okay. No. I tell you, having an article published is like, all right, yeah. I want to I wanna write more. another one and more. do it. I yeah. want more. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> You're especially past, especially past since I, I contributed very little to the to the last one. All right. Um, as always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. You can find us on Twitter at Ed's Not Dead PC. And check us out on our website if you want to go back and listen to archive shows. They are all there on edsnotdead.com plus... Uh, three guys in great suits that you can check out, right? <laughs> Pretty sharp. Yeah. Yep. Pretty sharp. Um, thanks for joining us, folks. Boys, any last words? Have a great week of learning, everybody. Yeah. And thanks again to Natalie Wexler. Mr. Graves, thanks for making sure we got here. We'll see you <laughs> soon. Thanks. Thanks.